From the studios of WBEZ in Chicago, Illinois, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we air part two of our interview with Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, a Muslim leader in the Sufi tradition and an internationally recognized figure in Muslim relations with the West. Later on the broadcast, Katie Scroggin reviews Brad J. Kallenberg's By Design, Ethics, Theology, and the Practice of Engineering. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. From 1983 to 2009, he served as Imam of Masjid Al-Farah, a mosque in New York City. In 1997, he founded the American Society for Muslim Advancement, or ASMA, the first Muslim organization committed to building bridges between Muslims and the American public by elevating the discourse on Islam through educational research, interfaith collaboration, culture, and the arts. Imam Rauf is a trustee of the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy magazine, and in April 2011, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. Imam Rauf, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Imam Rauf, when you participate in public policy discussions, you do so as a very visible person of faith. However, the arena of public policy in America and probably internationally is oftentimes very secular. How has your visible faith identity affected the tenor of these discussions? Well, I think I've had a, an influence upon the discourse, I think, uh, since 9-11, and uh, especially in where I have shared with, uh, you know, people like Madeleine Albright and in various spaces such as in Aspen, the fact that, you know, you're dealing, if the United States intends to deal with countries like, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Pakistan, and the list goes on, without understanding the role of religion in Islam, in particular in those societies, then our foreign policy will will be incomplete in terms of understanding of the issues and the vectors which act upon that. Um, uh, again, another example is, let's say, if you are trying to deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and trying to, uh, to uh, create peace in that region. If you do not understand the role and importance of religion to those communities and how this argument lie at the core of many of their claims, um, you know, then we will not have a complete, we'll not be playing with a complete set of cards. Uh, or to use the analogy from mathematics, we will not have all the vari- variables to the equation in our formulas of action. Uh, and I think that has had a profound influence upon the way people today think. I mean, uh, I was just in an event yesterday in Washington, D.C., where the State Department uh, was drawing upon the... Uh, and appealing to the uh, faith communities in this country to see what it could do to uh, to help advance 
the uh, the administration's efforts towards establishing, advancing peace, in the, particularly in the Holy Land. So uh, I think there's a greater understanding today and a willingness to recognize the role of religion. Uh, and the State Department has now uh, ambassadors for freedom of religion. It has a uh, an ambassador to the Organization of Islamic Conference or cooperation, as they now call themselves. So uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, there's a recognition that when we deal with, uh, with, with the regions, other regions of the world, we have to understand their mindsets and the, uh, the issues that are important to them. And there's no doubt that in dealing with the 1.5 billion Muslims in uh, over you know, 50 countries around the world, uh, that we have to understand the role of religion in many of them. So in American public policy discourse, oftentimes there's been this model of you know, we, we take off the coat of belief and underneath is the real secular person. But what I'm hearing you saying is that the State Department seems to have now a different model that it's that it's beginning to adopt, the sense that when it is dealing with, with these different cultures, when it's dealing with these different nations, the recognition that maybe uh, the dispensement of of belief is not the ideal, and and a purely secular discourse is not ideal. You, your your analogy of mathematics of not having the full set of variables. So there's, a, if I'm hearing you correctly, there's an inclusion of religion and the religious voice in public policy discussions, and you've been at this for a long time. Is is this is this a growing phenomenon in public policy discussions that uh, that the inclusion of the religious voices become more more important and more central? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I, I don't. I'm not sure that uh, that the that the players involved necessarily understand everything of what they're supposed to be doing. But I think there's a greater recognition that they have to at least recognize the role of religion, and and they are you know getting people who are supposedly religious people or people who know or who understand uh, the faith tradition to help them in terms of shaping their policies. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. Well, I'd like to stay with this for just a moment and, and ask a question that's slightly more personal in nature. As you've been in these various public policy discussions, have you ever encountered a moment where you felt pressured in some way to become less religious in your self-presentation? Or alternately, have there been situations where it was clear that folks in the room were encouraging you to be more religious than perhaps you were comfortable being in your self-presentation? Uh, I don't think the way you frame the question really applies. Okay. I mean, I, I don't think there is any pressure to be either more or less religious. What what has occurred is the because I tend to speak about I tend to speak about these issues from a what I call a scientific point of view. You know, it's like saying, hey, if you're if you're acting upon these, I mean, just as you're looking at from a mathematical or physics engineering point of view, you look at the forces. If you want to you know build a bridge or you want to do something, you have to understand all the forces that are acting in, the, in that particular given space. So it's about looking at it from that point of view and saying, look, if you want to, if you if you look at the, if you if you want to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, if you want to if you want to look at the Syrian conflict, 
all right? There are, uh, or, or Lebanon, there are different faith groups. There is Hezbollah, which is Shia. There is, there is the Assad regime, which is Alawid, which is related to the, the kind of a branch of the Shia. There's a Sunni majority. And these are factors on the ground that, that, that have political manifestations within that given space. So if you want to act in that space, you have to be, you can't be, uh, you know, colorblind, so to speak, to the different colors which are actually people identify with. So, you know, you, you, if you want to be an actor in the Syrian space, you have to understand the, the relationships between the different Shia groups, different Sunni groups, and how those are playing a role in the unfolding of the political realities. So if you're going to be a player in that space, the more you understand those factors, the more you can, you can shape your actions in a way that, that will achieve the desired outcome, rather than if you just were not even aware of those things, saying, hey, listen, because we are totally secular, we can't even allow ourselves to even see those, those realities. Then, you know, you are really... Um, um, Less less capable of of conducting a, a, a policy which will achieve anything. You mentioned so it's that kind of a, it's that kind of a discourse that I engage in, and when I say it, people say, "Oh yes, of course," you know, and once they see that, then they want to they want to be able to to express that kind of understanding in an intelligent way. It has no impact upon my religiosity as such, either way. If I've answered your question correctly, I I, I think so. And you've you've given me something that I'd like to sort of follow up on for just a moment. You you mentioned the language of science and physics, and I know that one of your your early degrees was in physics. Do I have that correct? Correct. So when you think of yourself as a person of religious faith, I'm going to assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you don't see a disunity between the language of physics and the explanations of the physical worlds, uh, the physical world that science in, engages in, and the language of religion as a descriptor of the world. Do you see those as two separate spheres, or do you see them as, as more unified? I see them as far more unified, because within our tradition, we have never seen that split as a split. That, and I, I think that that's very that's very helpful to to sort of in tying this together uh, when you when we talked earlier about uh, the Sufi tradition being a, a more mystical strand within Islam for Western ears it's easy to think that that would be an anti scientific strand therefore but what I'm hearing now in the conversation is know that what it is is it it's it's tying together this this uh, this unified description the spiritual the unseen world the uh, the seen world the physical world. What I'm hearing you saying is that within the Islamic tradition, these are seen as a as a unity, and the description of that unity can be helpful in terms of understanding what the Western eyes want to see as a secular religious split. You don't see as a split. No, we don't. We we do recognize within our Islamic tradition uh, the the um, the the differentiation between the you might say, to use the, the language of the cross, the vertical dimension, the horizontal dimension. And we do recognize that there are different dimensionalities to existence, but we don't see them as, you know, we, we see them as part of, part, of an, part of the universe. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. 
Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. Imam Rauf, you've always been involved in international relationship and coalition building, both for your own organizations and on behalf of the State Department. I'm wondering, over the past decade, particularly since uh, September 11, 2001, how has the focus of that work changed? Um, I think I did more of it after 2001, but uh, none of it after 2010. Interesting. Why, why none after 2010? Well, 2010 was when the so-called Ground Zero Mosque controversy broke out. Mm. And uh, and uh, somehow at that point, uh, I think my life went into a different orbit. Uh, although the uh, the work has become even more more important and more intense in a way, uh, but it certainly uh, you know has been has been something which I do at a different level now. Well, you mentioned uh, what has been commonly called the Ground Zero Mosque. It's also referred to as, at various times, Park 51, Cordoba House. I, I, I understand from my research of that that your intention with that project, and correct me if I'm wrong, was to create a space of dialogue and a space of, of interaction between cultures. You were not meaning it as a, as a confrontation to the West. So the reaction, it become it became very politicized, of course, and, and as you mentioned in 2010, became a real a real lightning rod, uh, particularly for certain news networks here in uh, in America. Looking back now, moving forward from that, as our listeners are listening to this, what could our listeners do positively to become better informed and to become better voices in the public sphere to help to counter those kind of polarizing moments of public discourse? It's a great question, David. Uh, I think, first of all, get to know a Muslim. I mean, that's the most important thing. Uh, I believe that, that having, having friends with people who identify with different faith traditions is the best way to, to, uh, to erase any kind of um, um, uh, myths, especially dangerous myths or negative myths that one may have. Um, it's even more valuable than than reading and studying about that faith tradition, although I don't discount the value of that at all. I mean, I believe I learn a lot from reading myself, and I encourage people to read. But I think more transformative is having friends. You know, I mean, I didn't have Jewish friends until I came to America because I grew up in Malaysia and in Egypt, where at the time that I was growing up, there were hardly any Jews there. But, you know, getting to know Jews, getting to have friends, developing personal friendships and deep personal friendships and attachments of love and affection, uh, these, uh, these uh, bridge the gap between the faith communities much more effectively than anything else. Um, and I think that's been proven by, you know, I write in my previous book, um, the one before the one you just mentioned, Moving the Mountain, uh, of the work of, of an important Indian sociologist who studied um, conflicts between Muslims and Hindus in India, and found that it did not happen in places where where Indians, uh, uh, Muslims, and Hindus uh, had specific types of relationships with each other, uh, where they were friends, where they were colleagues, where they were professional colleagues, um, and uh, even though the uh, demographics were similar to other cities 
where violence occurred. But in the cities where violence occurred, those relationships were absent. So to me, the most important thing is those personal relationships. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Rauf is an American Sufi imam, author, activist, and public intellectual. He's written three books on Islam and its place in contemporary Western society, including What's Right with Islam is What's Right with America, and he's founded two nonprofit organizations whose stated missions are to enhance the discourse on Islam in society. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Our guest is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Rauf is an American Sufi imam, author, activist, and public intellectual. He's written three books on Islam and its place in contemporary Western society, including What's Right with Islam is What's Right with America. And he's founded two nonprofit organizations whose stated missions are to enhance the discourse on Islam in society. And I want to stick with this for a moment because I think you've given us something par- very powerful in this conversation. So when we look at the last uh, four years in America, American political discourse is is completely divided, broken, very, very polarized. And what you just said was if you want to be a listener who can help to contribute to the betterment of public discourse about, about Muslim-American relations, get to know a, a Muslim person. And I, I think I think that we can expand that then to say, if you want, if if our listeners would like uh, the public policy discourse generally in America to improve, maybe beginning to forge relations with people of different political bent than your own might be a, a way forward as well. Am I am I hearing that generalization correctly? Absolutely, because in I mean, as we know very well, uh, it's the moderates who create. I mean, even in Congress, for example, right. Uh, it's all. It's not the extremists who uh, who who enact laws, who pass laws. It's the moderate, the middle. The, the, it's always that it, governance occurs. Government occurs in the middle, where where the um, you know the moderate Republicans and the moderate Democrats get together and they you know they craft legislation. Um, extremism is not how a society moves. A society moves by the the uh, you know the eighty percent that is in the middle of the bell curve, uh, and that's it's coming to the middle where everything is, and that's why within all our faith traditions, the perfect the perfected path is not the path of extremism; it's the path of moderation, the path of the middle, the where, that where things are perfectly in balance and in harmony. Uh, that's 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 considered the perfected human being, in fact. You mentioned a moment ago the, the controversy around Park 51, Cordoba House, the Ground Zero Mosque. I think that for a lot of people who may be listening to this program, that may unfortunately be the only way that they know you or have heard of you. Let's correct that. What do you see as the positive points of the work that you're doing that our listeners might not know about, but they should? Well, one of the major projects that I have is the project of defining ourselves as American Muslims. Um, you know, in the, the there is a general narrative which every faith community has undergone as it has immigrated to the United States. Uh, first, they are you know whether they're Catholics in America, from Ireland, from Poland, from Italy, 
whether they are Jews from Eastern Europe, um, you know, even Protestants from various parts of, of Europe. But when they come to America, they create an American church, an American Catholic church, an American Catholic identity, an American faith identity. American Judaism evolved in the same way. So when you could consider the conservative reform and uh, reconstructionist branches of Judaism. These are peculiarly American phenomena. Um, and my contention is that we too have to evolve ourselves from being immigrant Muslims, which is dominantly the case and has been the case through most of my 50 years of living in this country now, um, not quite, but almost, uh, to, to evolving ourselves to being American Muslims, rooted in America, having American institutions. I mean, our religions, our religious institutions have to be Americanized in, in many ways. And this is the, this is the value of and the, the um, purpose of the Cordoba House project uh, in part, which is to, to, to flesh that out, to give it meaning, to give it meaning in terms of, of, of how we look and how we dress and how we, you know, the architecture of our mosques, uh, to our laws and how we integrate our laws with American laws uh, and, and going on and so on and so forth down the line. Because when that happens, then we are seen as part of America and accepted as part of the American uh, uh, religious fabric. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is an internationally recognized voice in multi-faith and multinational efforts to improve understanding and relations between America and the Muslim world. His most recent book is Moving the Mountain, Beyond Ground Zero to a New Vision of Islam in America, published in 2012. What continues to give you hope? What keeps your work energized and moving forward as you look at the, the current landscape? Um, well, first of all, that's part. what I'm doing is part of our own tradition and part of the religious tradition as such. And in fact, if you look at the history of Islam uh, as it, as it uh, evolved or as it developed in different countries, you look at Christianity, we went from Palestine to, to Greece, to Rome, to England. And, you know, you had the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Catholic Church. So history gives me hope. And also what has happened in this country gives me hope. And also America. America has always been the land of hope. America in particular has been one of the greatest experiments and most important experiments in human history, not only in... Um, you know, in, uh, in, in developing a system of governance, uh, as Abraham Lincoln said when he, in his famous Gettysburg Address, when he, he said that, you know, uh, you know uh, four score and ten years ago when our ancestors came to develop uh, a, a republic dedicated to the proposition that all men were equal. And, and at that time, it was still a proposition, you know, and he, I mean, his battle of the freedom of slaves was part of the struggle uh, to to uh, to to get what he, what they called in the attempt to create a more perfect union. Uh, and and to me that that if I look at how much our country has evolved since then, 
and how it continues to evolve and and who we are continuing to become as Americans. I mean, 200 years ago, being American predominantly meant being white, Anglo-Saxon, English-speaking, Protestant. And look at how it has expanded to, to being people of all faiths. Look at how we have advanced, uh, you know, civil rights and gone back and recognized things that we did that were wrong in our own history. America has been dedicated to a fantastic proposition of the equality of all of humankind. And we're becoming increasingly that kind of, that kind of a country and that kind of a nation. And, you know, uh, our president mentioned it last night in his um, State of the Union speech when, when he said that, you know, the world looks to America because America is, is that country where, where the, the, the aspiration of, of human beings to, to, to reach that kind of Edenic perfection uh, is something that we are waging the struggle for and where we are hopeful that we actually can attain it. Because our, our, our republic is founded on principles that, that acknowledge God and acknowledge the, 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 the oneness of all human beings and acknowledges the fact that these rights are intrinsic to every human being, regardless of your, of your ethnic skin coloring, whatever background you are, that these rights are, you know, inalienable to us as human beings. So this is what gives me hope. Well, Imam Rauf, I have learned a great deal from our conversation today, and I, I thank you very much for being with us. Oh, that's the nicest thing that anyone can tell me. Thank you so much, David. Our guest today has been Imam Faisal Abdul Rauf. Imam Rauf is the founder of Cordoba Initiative, an independent, multi-faith, and multinational project that works with state and non-state actors to improve relations between the Muslim world and the West. Imam Rauf is a trustee of the Islamic Center of New York and is a vice chair on the board of the Interfaith Center of New York. He was listed as one of the top 100 global thinkers of 2010 by Foreign Policy magazine, and in April 2011, Time magazine named him among the 100 most influential people in the world. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this is part two of our interview with Imam Rauf. You can hear part one at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to learn about Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore all of them just like you were traveling back in time. After the break, Katie Scroggin discusses Brad J. Kallenberg's By Design, Ethics, Theology, and the Practice of Engineering. We'll be back in a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer a rich conversation about culture and faith. Over the past several decades, calls for education reform in the United States have increasingly seemed to focus on the centrality of the STEM curriculum. 
STEM, of course, is an acronym for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. This set of disciplines is ranged over and against what are often nostalgically referred to as the human sciences, or, more often, the humanities. There can be no doubt that the pursuit of the STEM curriculum has brought some marvelous things into the world. At the same time, technical knowledge pursued for its own sake has also been the source of a technology put to the service of human destruction rather than human flourishing. In many respects, the recent book, By Design, Ethics, Theology, and the Practice of Engineering by theologian Brad J. Kallenberg is an attempt to find a ground of ethical behavior within the realm of science and calculation. Katie Scroggin offers this review. Any humanities instructor who's worked with science students will probably be familiar with accusations that literature or art or ethics, for example, are fuzzy realms without a real methodology or established standards, subjects guided by personal whim. Instead of meeting these accusations with criticisms of scientism or with another standard defense of the humanities that ignores the realities of scientific fields, in By Design, Ethics, Theology, and the Practice of Engineering, Professor of Theology Brad J. Kallenberg draws upon his years teaching engineering students, producing an ethics text that confronts these objections on their own terms. In doing so, he explains what ethics is through an examination of what it means to be an engineer and to practice the art of design. The author points out that engineers begin their studies by learning simplified rules based on ideal situations. This method is illustrated by the inclusion both of straightforward diagrams, such as one used in order to calculate the position of a gear at a particular time, and sets of heuristics, step-by-step guides that teach students how to approach particular problems. But while these ideal problems are good for gaining a basic grasp of engineering, Kallenberg emphasizes what he calls the messiness of the lived world, a situation exemplified by the fact that real-world calculation of a gear's position will involve many factors left out of the basic diagram, such as play in the bearings, load on the motor, and temperature of the medium, factors that a real designer would have to consider in creating the best product for a given customer or situation, and the separate steps and linear ordering found in those heuristics that help a young engineer learn how to approach a problem are usually not really disconnected from each other and usually do not proceed in the straightforward fashion in which the charts would have us believe. In the real world, designers will have to move back and forth between steps, not proceeding in a neat, linear flow. The reminder that different circumstances and different clients will require distinct orderings of priorities and diverse approaches to various projects is also important for Kallenberg's illustration of what ethics is, a means of what Herbert McCabe describes as living life more sensitively. Just as a design solution that may be optimal in one situation might fail in another, the author reminds us that deciding how best to approach a given issue or situation in any area of life is context-dependent and that an overall best answer may not exist. So, for example, Kallenberg notes that we probably always expect a building to be constructed with maximum attention paid to safety. But sticking to that noble ideal is often not feasible, given the financial costs that such design would entail. In most projects, then, seeking to achieve a balance between all factors involved is not only ethical reasoning in action, but may also not include a single right answer, just the best one available for the situation at hand. Kallenberg takes us through the ways in which engineers learn to achieve this balance, a mastery that involves knowing which factors are of major importance in a situation, which ones may not be worthy of consideration at all, and how to bring a team together 
in order to achieve the most satisfactory design. Having moved from dependence on simple rules that teach the basics but don't allow for nuanced circumstances, skilled engineers have absorbed those basic ideals but have gained a feel for the practice that frees them from having to operate according to strict step-by-step adherence to simple schematics that may not provide enough guidance in a given situation. The knowledge and character that evolve out of this learning process are similar, Kallenberg shows, to the results of mastering ethical practice and understanding generally. Communication and the maintenance of personal relationships are essential to engineering, given the field's need for multiple sources of input and for team-based collaboration. As examples of good engineering practice simultaneously acting as ethical social behavior, Kallenberg offers us snapshots of individuals who have made difficult choices in pursuing ethical design habits. He then goes even further with these illustrations. In his discussions of ancient Christian engineers, such as Hugh of St. Victor and St. Basil, who practiced their professions in line with their metaphysical convictions, he asserts that engineering can qualify as a specifically Christian vocation. Although the discussion of engineering as a Christian calling does illustrate Kallenberg's point about ethics not being a mere add-on to particular fields, what may be most significant for all readers is the section on cross-domain transfer, or the incorporation of the insights of different disciplines into one's own. The author demonstrates, using real-world cases as examples, that the arts, philosophy, and other fields, far from being frivolous or unrelated to one's professional or personal development, only enhance and are enhanced by engineering. The discussion not only adds a final convincing touch to his elaboration of ethics as engineering, it is also especially welcome and urgent in an age where curricula are increasingly narrowly focused on only those practical skills, usually science and math-based, thought to secure a good job, eliminating in the process humanities and arts courses seen as unnecessary, budget-draining distractions. As he does with those who view the field of ethics skeptically, Kallenberg also responds to people who would slash humanities and arts funding on their own terms. Instead of arguing for the value of art for art's sake, he illustrates why too narrow a focus on one's field will only result in bad products. As a striking example of what results from this tunnel vision, the author reviews the situation of engineers who trained under Stalinist curricula, engineers who, because they were uneducated in anything but engineering, didn't have enough of a feel for life's messiness to produce anything but shoddy work. Kallenberg's plea for broader knowledge not only includes humanities practitioners used to considering their subjects superior to all other fields, it also extends to anyone too eager to view life as a series of black-and-white solutions to black-and-white problems. The author's unique presentation of why ethics matters, and why all of our pursuits are or should be more closely connected than they are, certainly won't fail to convince readers, or one hopes, to help them put their newfound openness into action. Katie Scroggin is an independent translator. She lives in Texas. She reviewed By Design, Ethics, Theology, and the Practice of Engineering by theologian Brad J. Kallenberg. Things Not Seen is a production of Sandberg Media, LLC. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Studio 7 at their Navy Pier Studios here in Chicago. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place in Fredericksburg, Texas, and at our studios here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Jim Tron was our editor. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. 
You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.